Today's scripture passage, um, scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, page um, chapter 17, and this can be found on page 875 in your pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 17. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in a spirit into a desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that was covered with blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, and now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule, until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is a great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This is God's word. If that's the first time you've heard Revelation 17 read, or the first time that you've read it, you can take full comfort in knowing you have every right to be totally confused. 
But Revelation 17 is really instructive because it provides for us the first concrete interpretation of what's going on in the whole book. But before we go there, let me comment on some language which could potentially be offensive and explain why I'm using it. The NIV tries to be inoffensive, as inoffensive as possible in the version that we read, by referring to this woman as a prostitute. Now, that's slightly more polite. You're going to see in any way, in any event, you're going to see that the, the Apostle John who wrote this was actually meaning the insult. So prostitute is really too polite. What he really means is she's a whore. Now, if we're going to talk like that, we've got to make a very careful caveat here. We realize in our current situation, a great percentage of the prostitutes who, who work in the sex trade in, in sex industry in America were groomed for that through childhood sex abuse. So we really don't want to be viewing prostitutes as sex workers. We don't want to be viewing them as sinners so much as sinned against. And we know that a lot of the foreign women who serve here in the sex trade are more like sex slaves. You know, they, they bought their immigration in this country. They came here with the promise of jobs, were locked up, were assaulted until they were willing to just pay off their debts any way they could. So John, the Apostle John, is not talking about prostitutes. This is about politics. But he's using the image of a whore and in fact, he calls the woman the mother of all whores. Remember in the first Gulf War, those of you who are old enough, and Americans mocked uh, Saddam Hussein because we weren't familiar with this, uh, this idiom, the mother of. And, and Saddam Hussein said, well, we're, we are about to witness the mother of all battles as the U.S. and the coalition forces invaded Iraq. Well, the mother of all is a perfectly typical Arabic Middle Eastern metaphor. What it means is not only is she a whore, she's the whore of all whores. So he's using it as a metaphor to describe a political situation. He's not condemning people who are forced into prostitution or people who are groomed for prostitution through sexual abuse. We need to distinguish between sinners and sinned against. That's not the context that he's speaking in. Now, Revelation 17, moving along, is crucial for one thing. Because for the first time, all along, I've been talking to you about the interpretation of the book of Revelation. And you know how it's commonly done. Some of you are too young to remember this. It's not that long ago. But in the as 2000 approach, the year 2000 approach, the millennium approach, the new millennium, then there was all sorts of speculation about, is Jesus coming back? And then Tim LaHaye, well, his ghost author, ghost writer, uh, Jerry Jenkins, put out a whole series, the Left Behind series of books. And 12 books, and then there were two uh, sequels, at least two sequels. All these books about, okay, here's what the end of time is going to look like. And, and here's what the Bible is saying about our day and age. And this was not the first time it happened, because in the 60, in 65, 68, Hal Lindsey put out a book saying about how the 60s, you know, Christ is about to come back. And, and this is what it's going to look like. And Revelation tells us what's going to happen as Jesus is ready to come back. And both of these authors try to correlate what's happening in our world with what's happening in Revelation so that they can prepare and predict the end of time. And Hal Lindsey was not the first guy to do it. Because I once had uh, lunch overseas. When I was overseas, I had lunch with a fellow who was a generation older than me. 
And he mentioned that in 1939, January 1st, he was a boy, January 1st, 1939, and he was really disappointed. And his faith was shaken when he woke up on January 1st, 1939. Because in his day, Bible teachers were saying, okay, the book of Revelation tells us what's going to happen at the end of time. And Hitler is the Antichrist. And 1939 is never going to come. And actually, 1939 was not the first time this happened. This has happened over 200 times. And it was really popular before the year 1000. So all along, I've been telling you, Revelation is not really about the end of time. Revelation is about the first century. And you've had to accept it on faith. But look at, turn with me, Revelation chapter 17. Notice verse 7, 17 verse 7. Notice what the author writes. I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. I will explain to you. This is the first time the author offers to explain to us what he's writing about. Up until now, it's been all sorts of fantastic imagery. A beast and seven heads and ten horns and famines and plagues. And, and it's all been this obscure References and we've had to kind of like read it like science fiction literature and, and try and figure out what's going on here. So for the first time, the author says, now I'm going to explain to you. And we'll see that what he's talking about is the first century. Now, if you're a student of history, you're fine with that. If you're not a student of history, you're wondering, is it going to say anything to us? Scripture, Revelation 17, does speak to us in the 21st century. But it speaks to us through them. So first we want to hear what God is saying to them, and then we're going to hear what God says to us through them. And in order to do that, in order to understand what the author is saying in Revelation 17, we take, have to take a look. I'll show, I want you to take a look at a coin, an ancient coin. Now, coins in the ancient world were ways to commemorate uh, crucial events of history. And any time the Romans achieved some great battle, when, when Rome invaded Palestine and destroyed Jerusalem and burned down the temple, they issued a coin. So that everybody could use the coin and they could celebrate how great and powerful Rome was. Well, here is a Roman coin. This is one of hundreds that have survived, uh, all different. This one won't match up entirely with Revelation, but this one gives us a good clue to what Revelation is talking about. Here on the head of the coin, you have the emperor's face. And around that, you have all sorts of titles and abbreviated titles. Later on in Revelation, we'll see it refers to the head and the blasphemous names. The emperor would put on here things like the son of God, the priest of all priests, world ruler. So the head of the coin would have the emperor's face and all sorts of flamboyant, self-aggrandizing titles. And then on the tail side, on this coin, what we have here is what looks to be like a, a soldier. This is actually... Uh, Roma. This is a, a picture of Roma. Roma is the patron deity. She's the goddess who rules over Rome. And she's the one who brought blessing to the Roman Empire. This is a picture of the goddess Roma in battle dress. You see the sword underneath her left arm that's, uh, that I've circled there. She's in battle dress with a sword. That's the emperor, uh, Roma, uh, the uh, goddess Roma. And then behind her, 
you see seven what looks like stones. This is actually Roma, the goddess, leaning against the seven hills of Rome. Rome was built on seven hills. So here's a picture of Roma in her posture, leaning on Rome, blessing Rome, whatever, that sort of thing. And then finally we see, oh, not finally, but then the next slide we see in this circle here, the lower head in a circle. I don't know if you still do Roman mythology in schools. When I was in school, we did Roman mythology. Here is the she-wolf. Remember, in Roman mythology, the city of Rome was founded by Romulus and Remus. And they were, we, they were, they were nursed in the wilderness by a wolf. This is the wolf and Romulus and Remus, if you could see it small enough. Now, here's the thing. You know how typically now the word cougar, how the, the cougar becomes a euphemism or slang for something else? You know, cougar is a slang today for an older woman who's chasing after younger men. Uh, in the first century, wolf, the word for wolf was used as a slang for prostitute. And the place of the wolf was the name for uh, uh, whorehouse. So here you have the wolf. Now, of course, the Romans didn't mean that. But it helps to understand what John is saying later on in Revelation. And then finally, on the right-hand side, you have a figure, a male figure, uh, personified as the river Tiber. Because the Tiber flows through Rome. And basically, geographical boundaries in the ancient world were all defined by water. You have the Mediterranean Sea, you have the Euphrates River, you have the river Tiber. So that background helps us understand what's going on here in Romans 17. So turn back with me to Romans chapter 17. The angel, verse 3, The angel carried me away in the spirit to a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. These purple and scarlet are flamboyant colors. They, they cost a lot more. Purple and scarlet uh, fabric cost a lot more in the ancient times. She was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She's wearing the gaudy apparel of a prostitute. She held the golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things, the filth of her adulteries. The title that was written on her forehead said, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of saints and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And then she explains the beast in verse 8, or he explains the beast in verse 8. The beast which you saw, once was, now is not, will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he was once was, now is not, and yet will come. The seven hills are, the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Seven hills, Rome was built on seven hills. Seven kings, ancient Rome, before the emperors came in, ancient Rome was reputed to have had seven kings in the course of its history. 
Five have fallen, one is. The be- verse 11. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns are ten kings. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. The waters which you saw where the prostitute sits are the peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The woman you saw, verse 18, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. What do we have going on here? The head with the blasphemous names? That's the representation of the Roman emperor with all those titles surrounding him. On the tail of the coin, the prostitute who sits on the seven cities, that's Roma. Overseeing the city of Rome, blessing the Roman Empire. Most of the seven cities to which Revelation was written had a temple dedicated to Roma. She sits on the seven hills. Rome was built on seven hills. At her right is the river of God. At her left, what, the left side of the coin, no, the right side of the coin is the river Tiber. She sat over many waters. On her left, she suckled Romulus and Remus. She was an animal raising children. At the same time, she's a symbol of a prostitute. What John is saying is this. This beast with these pretentious names, pretentious claims, this is your emperor. This is the Roman emperor. This emperor is is the most powerful person in the world and basically the richest. But he's not prestigious. What John is saying is, no matter how powerful he looks, he's an animal. He's not the son of God. He's the bastard son of a whore. That's what John is saying about the emperor. And then he turns to them and says, what about this goddess they worship? She's no goddess. She's a whore. She's the mother of all whores, the worst of all whores. You can't get more hostile or profane in polite conversation than what John did here. Their emperor is a wild animal, a beast. Their goddess is a prostitute. This is what John's message is to his church. This political system which is persecuting you, this emperor who demands to be worshipped, He's not the son of God. He's lower than a human being. He's an animal. He demands your worship. We don't worship animals. We worship the true God. Uh, This goddess who they say has blessed their empire, this goddess in whose name we are being persecuted, she's no honorific. She's a whore. And then in verse 14, he, he summarizes it with this. In verse 14, they will make war against the lamb but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And with him will be his called, his chosen, his faithful followers. John is addressing a small, threatened, persecuted church which is struggling for its very life. 
the people in the church are struggling to preserve their lives. The church as a whole is struggling for its life. It's dominated, it's overwhelmed by this empire, by this emperor. And they're forced to worship, or pressured to worship someone who is no god. They're forced to worship, pressured to worship a goddess who is no true goddess. And John's motivation is to encourage these people to stand for God no matter what it costs them, even if it costs them their lives, even if it costs them their families. And he says, when any human being demands worship, this is blasphemous. He's no God, no son of God. And whenever any other goddess arises and claims to be God, this is not truth, this is falsehood. She's a whore, she's not a god. John is trying to bring courage to his threatened church that they might persevere against overwhelming odds. And so all of Revelation is written to this struggling church in the first century. Will we survive? Why don't we just compromise? Why don't we just worship God, but yet do what we have to do to stay alive? And John is saying, drawing a line in the sand, he says, no. No matter what it costs, you cannot do this. It's life or death. You don't do it. You can't do it. So he's trying to give courage to a struggling, frightened church. What does it say for us who don't face an overpowering government and, aren't, and whose faith is not threatened but protected by a government? First of all, it tells us this. Revelation, again, is about the first century, primarily. We, God will speak to us through Revelation, and we'll look at that in a moment. But first of all, God was speaking to them. He was speaking about the Roman emperor and the grandiose titles that emperor claimed. He was speaking about the goddess Roma, whom they were pressured to worship. He wasn't speaking first of all to us, he was speaking first of all to them. Now, you don't need to know that now. But I don't know when you will need to know that. Because you needed to know that in 1998. You needed to know that in 1968. Every generation, it seems, goes weird about the book of Revelation and starts trying to figure out the future from the book of Revelation. And as long as people will buy this stuff, other people will write it. And it sells millions and millions of copies of these books. And it gets people all excited about fanciful interpretations which have no bearing on the real meaning of Revelation. Probably, at least for those of you who are, you are still in youth ministry, probably before you die, if not before I die, we'll have this cycle repeat itself again. Because it seems to happen every generation. It's not what Revelation is talking about. It's, it's not what God is telling us through Revelation. God is not talking to us about our rulers. He's not telling us how to predict the end of time in our generation. It's about the first century, first of all. But secondly, Revelation, like any other biblical book, God speaks to us through them. And what is he saying to us? Let's ask this. Let's start. What is he saying to people who are in a similar situation as in the day of Revelation? What is he saying to the church of North Korea? What is he saying to the church of Mali, the church of Saudi Arabia, the church of Iran, Iraq? 
What is he saying to the persecuted church? What is he saying to the church, or what was he saying to the church of China back during the Cultural Revolution? What is he saying to the church in any country where the church is persecuted? He's saying the same thing to them that he said to the church of Asia Minor in the first century. He's saying to them, these people who persecute you are powerful. They can kill you. They can destroy your church. But they are not good. They are not holy. They are certainly not gods. They're beasts. They're animals. They're whores. We can live. We can die. But he's saying to this persecuted church, you cannot worship those who are not gods. Those who are lower than human beings. Those who are the lowest of the human beings. The lowest of the social order. He's saying to the church in persecuted countries in this day and age, stand for God. Live for him. Die for him. There is no option. These are not gods. They're profane creatures. Now, what is he saying to us who don't live in that, you know, live in comfort and ease and prosperity? I think we want to talk about form first, about the language, the sort of language, the civility of it all. Does God justify us referring to our political system or our particular political rulers this way? There was an article in Christian Magazine recently about how can we evangelize Muslims? Do we go to Revelation 17 and say, okay, what we should tell Muslims is that, I don't even want to say it because of the controversy that ensues. Should we insult Allah? Should we insult their prophet? And you know the riots that ensue. Can we use this language when dealing with other religions? Uh, notice, first of all, this is insider religion. This is, sorry, insider language. John is not writing to the citizens of the Roman Empire or the rulers of the Roman Empire and telling them, your God is a whore. Your king is a beast, a wild animal. He's writing to Christians, insider communication rather than outsider. The insider language often differs from outsider language. And secondly, he's writing in a context of great brutality. And we don't live in that sort of context. Maybe if we're in a small house church in Saudi Arabia, maybe then we would talk quietly about these things. Just to give you one illustration. When I was a lecturer in Singapore, Bible college lecturer in Singapore, I was director of admissions for a couple of years, and I got a letter from an applicant from Saudi Arabia. She was actually Korean, but she married a Saudi, and they were living in Saudi Arabia. They were about to migrate to Singapore, and she was applying to Bible college. And she put very carefully in her letter, the letter had been mailed from outside Saudi Arabia, so she, because you, you couldn't send a letter from Saudi Arabia addressed to Singapore Bible College. And she put in that letter, do not send me back a letter with the, the stationery, the, the college letterhead. You've got to use blank envelopes. You know, the context is so prone to brutality. Persecution is an ever-present threat. And in that context, John uses this kind of language to bring courage. In our context, where we don't face that threat, in the public domain, 
we use insider language only with insiders. We want to be civil in our public discourse. But that's about form. We shouldn't be using this language outside the church. But what about substance? What is, what is the real meaning of this for us today? What John is saying by analogy is this. Anyone who's, you know, if you're, if you're married or happily married, what John is saying is this. You don't give up your loving husband for an animal. You know, you don't desert your husband and go chase after a bear. This makes no sense. If you're a beloved wife, you don't leave your home and your kids to go work as a prostitute. It makes no sense. What he's saying to us is, we won't face violence, we won't face persecution, we won't face obligation to give up our faith, but we will face some hardships in life. They're minimal compared to Rome, but they're big to us because they're the only things we face. Maybe we will face cancer in our lives or in people we love. And we'll get resentful for whatever reason. God never promised to prevent it, but somehow we think, oh, God's going to give me an easy life. If, if I'm faithful to him, he'll give me an easy life. So if something bad happens to us, and, and we start resenting him. And we're inclined to give up our faith. It could be any kind of struggle. Struggles at school, struggles with our gender identity, struggle in relationships, struggle at work or at school, in employment. And any of these things, we can... They were faced with the risk of giving up their faith in the face of persecution. We'll probably never face persecution. But we'll have things happen in our lives, and we'll resent and we'll think, maybe I should, you know, just turn away. Revelation 17 talks to us about that. These things that happen in our lives, these are not what define us. What defines us is, is God. These things are not worth giving up God for. What defines us and, and what we live for is God himself. In the face of persecution, they're to value God. In the face of mild adversity, we're to value God. Don't give up God for some other form of success. Don't give up God for ambition. Don't give up God for wealth. Don't give up God for... oh. Don't give up God because you think some other man is more glamorous than your husband or some other woman is more glamorous than your wife. You can't have them both, God and an affair. You have to give up God to have that affair. Don't be stupid. She's a, he's a beast. She's a whore. That's what this book is saying. That's what Revelation is saying to us. It says something else to us. It may not be appropriate for us to go out and tell somebody who's a Hindu or tell somebody who's a Muslim or tell somebody who's a Buddhist or tell somebody who's an atheist. Your God, your ideas, the, your God is a brute animal. Your goddess is a whore. It doesn't, it's not appropriate for us to tell us that, tell other people that. But what does it tell us about their religion? If they are sincere worshipers, faithful worshipers of their gods, if they are good people, could they be saved? If they're really sincere and follow all the five ways or the eight paths, uh, will they achieve salvation? Will, even if our God is the only God, will he accept their worship as sincere worship? 
This is very common. Christians will often try and, and resort to this kind of logic. Because it's, it makes our relationship with other people easier. It makes our own conscience easier. C.S. Lewis did it in his book, The Last Battle. It's an appealing thought that we don't have to be uh, despised for being so absolutistic, for being so arrogant. It's an appealing thought. But what does John say about Roma? Not only is she not a god, She's a whore. What Revelation 17 tells us more than anything else is this. We have a significant part of the world that still does not know the name of Jesus and an even bigger part that doesn't love the name of Jesus. We have a significant part of the world that has no access except through perhaps internet. No easy access to anyone who does know the name of Jesus and love the name of Jesus. If we take nothing else away from this chapter, what we have to take away from it is this. There is only one God, maker of heaven and earth, Lord of all that is and ever will be. There is only one Savior who came to die for sin and offers life to those who put their faith in him. There is only one way to obtain this salvation. Not through the name of Roma, or through the name of Buddha, or the, through the name of Krishna, or through the name of Allah. There's only one way, only one God, only one Savior. If nothing else, Romans 17 tells us this clearly. Missions has got to be a high priority in our church and in our lives. We all may not go, but we all must be engaged because there is no other true God, no other true Savior, no other way to life for the world. Let's pray together. Father, this language is far too graphic, far too hostile for us to feel comfortable with in our easy context. But we take this from it, that you have brought salvation to us, not simply so that we can be saved, but that so we can offer salvation to every people, every tribe, every language, every nation. We ask for your blessing on those who've left our midst to serve you among the unreached peoples who've never heard your name. We ask for your blessing on our lives, that this stream might continue, that it might not just be people we've sent in the past, but that we might go in the future. May your word burn in our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name.